On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the Sunshine List that came out late last week. That is the provincial, only the provincial, not federal municipal, the provincial government employees making over $100,000 a year. You know how many there were? 205,000 provincial government employees. Does that not seem to other people, other than me, to be an extraordinarily high number during a pandemic, especially since that's up by 23% over the year before? Hmm, We'll talk about that. You can agree, you can disagree, but boy, I think that's a high, high number. We're also going to be talking about the Blue Jays, about March Madness, about the NHL and COVID, all kinds of other stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. If you want to announce something and you don't think people are going to like it much, 4.59 p.m. on a Friday, boom, drop it. And then everyone has to scramble, but people are locked in for deadlines and you miss the news and it's, it's, it's how it's done. But that's what time the sunshine list was dropped on Friday, right before five o'clock. And I don't think it's all that surprising when you look at the numbers, they're stunning. 23%, we're in a pandemic, remember, 23% increase in the number of Ontarians, public servants, civil servants, making over a hundred thousand dollars. We're up 23%. We now have, just among the provincial public employees, 205,000 people making $100,000 or more. How does that relate? How does that compare to your income? Just out of curiosity. Let me bring in Jasmine Moulton, who is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We always love having her on. Jasmine, thanks for doing this today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I... I, um, I, I'm sorry for this, but in a time of pandemic, I kind of, uh, I found that number absolutely staggering. I almost fell off my chair when I thought, you know, everyone else seems to be tightening their belts uh, and we're going up and we've got 205,000 provincial civil servants making over a hundred grand. Were you expecting this or were you as surprised as I was? Well, I think that everybody should be shocked in Ontario, given that this was a government back in 2018 that promised to, uh, you know, put an end to the government bloat, um, respect taxpayers' money. And right now, frankly, we're seeing the opposite of that at a time when hundreds of thousands of taxpayers are sitting at home out of work um, because of these government-mandated lockdowns. Uh, you would think, and, and also it's the sharpest economic decline on record in the province. Usually if an employer goes broke, they're handing out pink slips. But in the case of government, it looks like they're handing out uh, you know, tens of thousands, well, hundreds of thousands of raises. But in the case of nearly 40,000 government employees, that puts them, uh, tips the scale at over $100,000 now a year. Uh, yeah. And, and we're not, and just to be clear, we're not talking about municipal or federal civil servants either, right? So you could have double this number, maybe more that are making over 100,000 that are on the public dime. Absolutely. When you factor into all of the, uh, you know, Ottawa obviously is in Ontario and there are a lot of federal government bureaucrats working there. But you're right that this is this report that's out is just about uh, provincial employees. And I'll remind your listeners that there's over a million people working for the government of Ontario that depend on Ontario taxpayers for their paycheck. So when you have nine out of 10 of the pandemic related job losses happening outside the world of government, so in the private sector, uh, you need to really trim the size of government and the cost as well, or else it's not sustainable. We have fewer taxpayers now paying for the massive costs 
of government employee compensation in this province. And uh, I'll remind your listeners as well that that is the single government employee compensation is the single largest expense faced by the Ontario government every year. It's about 50% of all operational spending. So every about half of our budget goes toward government employee compensation. And as we see today, everyone should be concerned when it continues to go up, regardless of what the economy is doing, regardless of reality. Um, financial reality for the province is pretty dire. Ontario is about $400 billion in debt. The deficit was $39 billion this year. So really, they should be trying to trim their biggest expense. But as we see, it just continues to balloon. Well, and you just caught me off guard with one of the things you just said. If, in fact, we have about a million provincial government employees, that means one in five is making over $100,000. I would, I would, I have no numbers in front of me. I would dare say one in five private sector employees are not making $100,000. Oh, no, absolutely not. So we see the uh, average household income in Ontario in the $60,000 range. So um, this is quite a stark difference. And, uh, you know, if I hear one more politician say that we're all in this together, I think this report today shows that, no, there are two classes of people uh, in this province, those who work for government and those who don't. Um, And the ones who don't really have to, you know, uh, shoulder the reality of, um, the economic times, uh, but really we have not seen the same in government. No. And the message it sends also rather loudly, I would think, is that the public sector is not working for the people. The people are now working for the public sector. And some people may say you're being cynical. Well, I don't think so. Not if you're talking about those kind of pay differences. We are now paying to make the government run rather than the other way around. They're not working to make us run better. Absolutely. And I would also point out, um, you know, one of the biggest expense, well, taxes are actually the largest expense faced by the average household. Um, but next to that, I think a lot of your listeners will think, you know, I, pay, I spend a lot on my hydro bill on, on um, you know, the price of energy in this, in this province. Well, six of the top seven spots on the province's sunshine list, so the highest paid uh, people in the province, um, work at Ontario Power Generation. So Kevin Hartwick, if we look at him, he's the OPG president and CEO. He's a top paid government employee with a salary of $1.2 million a year. Um, and teachers as well, I think uh, your listeners might be surprised. If you were to ask the, you know, the average listener, how much does a teacher earn? They might tell you, you know, 60 or 70,000 a year. Well, actually, the average Ontario teacher now, um, when you factor in well, actually, before you even factor in any sort of pension um, or benefits, of which those are those are pretty steep, um, but we look we see actually now 23% of all Ontario teachers earn a six-figure salary. But when you factor in uh, the cost, like I say, of their pension, their benefits, um, the average Ontario secondary school teacher, for example, um, their total compensation is around $114,000. So you have to start to scratch your head, you know, why can't we um, make class sizes smaller, that sort of thing? Well, when teachers are compensated very generously, as they are, well, maybe that's part of the reason why costs continue to go up. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jasmine, one of the things that I've heard, I can't tell you how many times since Friday afternoon when this list came out, 
is, listen, this isn't that big a deal. It's an unfair list because when Mike Harris introduced this back in the 90s, $100,000 is really $166,000 or something like that in today's money. So $100,000, you know, I mean, come on, this this list doesn't really tell us much. I, I don't know. I, even in 2021, 100000 still seems like a reasonably decent living to me. Exactly. Imagine how privileged you'd have to be as a government employee who lives off the taxpayer's dime to say that $100,000 isn't what it used to be. (laughs) I mean, $100,000 is a lot of money. Um, And also, like I said before the break, when you consider that the average household income, and that's not, um, you know, one person's salary, that's for the average household income is somewhere in the $60,000 range in Ontario. $100,000 is quite a lot of money. Um, so I just simply don't buy it that $100,000 is a small sum. And I, I really do say that government employees are privileged to suggest that. And they should be embarrassed to say that to the people paying their salaries. But let me just remind them of one other thing. Where does inflation come from? If they're going to say that inflation has really chipped away at $100,000 over the years, well, inflation only comes from one place, and that's government spending. So the more that the government wants to spend and borrow to spend, because let's remember, they don't have their they're spending on the next generation's credit card because this is all debt financed. Um, you know, inflation comes from the government. So if they want to say that inflation has chipped away at the $100,000 mark, then maybe they should get their spending under control because they're the ones causing all of this inflation. Well, another thing that I've heard a lot since last Friday was that, um, and and this is true, that a a large chunk of where this list grew was the result of overtime. And, you know, nurses, for example, and like, I don't think anyone is complaining about nurses making overtime money and doing what they had to do under the circumstances. And and so, but the, but it, it suggests among other people who are saying, well, yeah, but overtime, how many private sector people were working endless amounts of overtime just to try and keep their business afloat? And once again, it's not that I'm arguing, or I don't think you're arguing that we don't appreciate that some people were doing this. It's the, it's the, the commentary as if nobody else is going through this, that we alone were working overtime to try and keep things going. And therefore we alone somehow deserve this and you shouldn't question it. Everybody's been working overtime to try and stay afloat. I think you raise a really good point, and I have two things to say about that. Um, if the headline was that there was a, a increase for doctors or nurses, I don't think that people would have the same level of public outcry. But there was a 23% growth in the Sunshine List in Ontario across the board. So this is not just um, relegated to healthcare. This is across the board. So there are a lot of people, you know, bureaucrats doing the same old job that they've done every year that are getting these raises as well. Um, and then what I'd also say is, like you said, outside in the private sector, people working outside of government, um, here at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we all took a 15% pay cut um, because we're salaried while increasing our output to try and stay afloat. Um, that we, you know, we took pay cuts. And I actually have, I know of friends who have taken a 50%, 50% pay cut, um, and they're salaried workers. Um, and, you know, they're trying to work as hard as they can to keep their jobs from going under. Um, so I think, like I started off by saying, it's very clear that we're not all in this together. The vast majority of job losses have been in the private sector, people who don't work for government. Um, so it really just, I think, is a fairness issue at the end of the day. 
Well, and I think you and I have talked about this before. I mean, I would have loved to have seen some people, uh, I would have loved to have seen some politicians voluntarily take a pay cut just to show solidarity, even though in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it would have made much difference, but it would have at least shown a willingness to sacrifice and be part of this whole thing. And I would have loved to have seen some of the public sector unions whose members were waiting for their one or 2% pay say, come on, it's pandemic time. Let's put this off for a year just to show good faith. We'd like to, maybe some of us would like to see even more, but you know, we'll just pass on our pay, our, our increase for this year or next, just to show that we're in this thing. But nothing, I mean, it, and it looks like two completely different worlds. The private sector is scrambling and the public sector, there is no impact on anything. Absolutely. And uh, it becomes especially laughable when you think that the teachers unions were staging strikes before March of last year saying, we don't want online learning. Um, And they were saying, you know, a 1% raise isn't enough. And then the pandemic strikes. And now all they want is online learning. And that 1% raise that Doug Ford was offering suddenly didn't look so bad when you had hundreds of thousands of people without government jobs that lost their work. And I think that one of the real divides between the government class and the rest of us is uh, public sector pensions. So um, these can be uh, completely um, outside of reality in terms of if there are market fluctuations, um, you know, they're guaranteed, they're backstopped by the taxpayer. Oftentimes the taxpayer doesn't have a pension him or herself. Um, So there is a really big and growing divide between public and private sector, government or not government. Um, But at the end of the day, when we see hundreds of thousands outside of government losing their jobs, that means that there's less of us to pay for government. And this is not a slight on government workers. Um, We greatly appreciate, you know, the sacrifice that they've made, um, especially in the healthcare sector throughout the pandemic. Um, But we have to say, if those services are important to us and we want them to last and we want them to be funded sustainably, um, then we have to make sure that we're only spending what we can afford and handing out massive raises at a time when the government government coffers aren't only dry, they're about $400 billion in the red, they're not going to be around for very much longer. And I want to just say, we got to go, but I really, I appreciate what you're saying. We're not anti-government employees. We're not slamming government employees. It's the moment, it's the circumstances, the situation that looks horrible and looks unsustainable because this is a really bad time for this list to have gone way through the roof. Uh, as I let you go, I do want to say, since you took a pay cut, I will no longer call a public servant a public servant. You are now a private servant. I think that's how it should work now, that you are serving them. So away you go. Uh, Jasmine Moulton. I can get behind. <laughs> yeah, re- Really appreciate the time. Thanks as always for doing this. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in at this point a guy that we have here every Monday at this time. He is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys Hockey Club. He is the guy behind Calm Choice Realty in Dundas. He is the once and future Dundas Citizen of the Year. His name is Don Robertson. Sir, how are you today? Good, Scott. How are you? What a perfect day. It is a perfect... You know what I did yesterday? Because it was another perfect day. I took down the Christmas decorations. Actually, that's not entirely true. It's somewhat misleading. Our entire Christmas decoration consisted of one of those flashy light bulbs in the ground that you plug in and it displays on the house. So I removed our Christmas decoration that had been buried under Were snow you? until the last few days. So, But I felt good. I felt like it, you know, it officially put an end to winter. So let me ask you this, because I don't uh, clearly live at your house. Did uh, did that come with some 
persuasion and suggestion from anyone in particular or through sheer embarrassment that it's 65 degrees out and I got my Christmas <laughs> decorations still up. Well, now, again, to clarify, singular decoration, because I get in a lot more trouble, Don, by the fact that I don't do the Clark W. Griswold house, uh, which <laughs> which would be what people would want around here, some of them. And so I finally relented last year and got one of those, you know, flashy balls that, that blast lights and twinkle bulbs and everything onto the house. So um, to be honest, I had kind of even forgotten it was out there because we hadn't plugged it in since about two days after Christmas and it had been under snow until a week ago. And it was sort of completely forgotten about. But yes, when I saw it, it was like, I probably should get that out before we have to lawn mow the lawn around it, <laughs> which <laughs> would have been a little ridiculous. Anyway, so yes, I'm, I've, I've moved into Easter time now. Well, <laughs> that's probably why you had to take it down because you had something else to put up. But I, I understand. I, I, as you know, illuminate the uh, the country house out here, and uh, but I do it with floodlights because it's easier than, you know, if one bulb replaces, I do one. I don't climb anywhere. I'm not much of a climber, especially socially. <laughs> Talking about springtime, if I could, uh, <laughs> most people don't want me around them anyway. Uh, as a matter of fact, you've got me as far away as you can get me. Uh, wanted to mention a couple of things if I can on local Shoot. activities. Because you really have to admire all the service clubs and so many people still doing so many things to be relevant in their communities. And this stuff is all new to these guys because, you know, quite frankly, not a lot of people did fundraising during the last pandemic and nobody can remember what they did. But this past Saturday, the Rockton Lions Club, who are a tremendous Lions Club out of the Beverly Community Center, former home of the uh, Rockton Real McCoys. Uh, that's where they used to meet, and they they basically built the building. But I believe it was the fairgrounds. doesn't matter where it was. They had a huge bottle and can drive. And based on the results, I'd, first of all, I'd like to thank the Lions Club for all they do in the community. But based on the numbers I was told regarding bottles and cans, and I'm not sure if there's an AA club out in the Rockton area, but it certainly sounds like there should be because they had <laughs> mountains of beer cans and wine bottles. So somebody needs some help out there. And I live out there. I mean, I, a lot of my friends, but I've just, after based on the numbers I heard, they had some shaky stuff going on. And the Copetown Lions Club at the Copetown Community Center this Friday night between four and seven are getting creative as well. They, you've been to the fairs. A lot of these service clubs have uh, food trailers and everything else to try and help them raise some money. And the Copetown Lions are, are uh, doing similar things with the Rockin' Lions. And this Friday between 4 and 7, they're going to have a drive-through for beef on a bun, french fries, and coleslaw. So if you're out that way, you know, support these people. They give all of their time to their community and they're wonderful organizations. And they're trying to stay front and center and they're trying to do good things. So that's my community service for tonight. Very good. And if it was in Buffalo, it would have been beef on a weck. So, but yeah, you know, we'll take on beef a weck, on a bun. Exactly. Uh, you know what? I, I wasn't going to get to this, but I just saw a tweet that came across just before we came back from the commercial break here. And Don, it appears that the Edmonton Oilers Montreal Canadiens game is has been postponed. It's now the first game in the North Division that has been postponed because of COVID. A couple, at least a couple Canadians have, I guess, gone into the COVID protocol. Protocol, yeah. 
But you know, I'm like I'm wondering about this one, and and I don't really understand how concerned. If not those two teams, I mean those two teams for sure, especially the Canadians, you're you're wanting to make sure that you're, you know, you don't have it sweep through the team. But if you were a team that was going to be playing against Montreal in the next little while, how concerned are you? Because I had to look this up because I wasn't really sure. And what it says is that it can the best time you like if you acquire if you're um around COVID you will probably not, even if you have it, you probably will not show up with a positive test until about four to six days. That apparently is the best or the, you know, the time when you can really start getting an accurate reading. But even if they delay the game today and then all of a sudden they say, okay, but we can play tomorrow or the next day, but the two guys who are in protocol can't play. Would you be comfortable if you were either a teammate, but especially a guy on another team, that it hasn't already been passed around and you're not lining up against someone who has got this? No, I don't think so. And I'd be as concerned as any if I played the Habs three or four days ago, and I don't yeah. appreciate having their schedule in front of me. It's the guys that played them on the weekend that that may have the bigger concern based on your analysis, which is shared by lots of people. And... The other one that I found odd, or the, it's a bit strange, wasn't it Buffalo-Boston? That Boston had a couple of guys test positive, and then they canceled the game. And, and But it's it's the stuff prior to that. I mean, they do the best they can, right? They can't cancel a game thinking somebody might have something. But it's the two or three games before. And then, so if you've got, using the hypothetical, that a couple uh, Montreal Canadiens have it, and nobody else does. The reason they have to kind of stall things for three or four days is because they don't know who else. I mean, there could be five other guys in the dressing room who have it, but they're non-symptomatic right now, and they won't know. So they can't cancel for a day or two. They got to cancel for, you know, three or four days. <clears throat> interesting though. Did they? It, it's always interesting whether it's actually players or even if it's support staff, somebody that may not even be interacting a whole lot with the players, but they still. Out of uh, out of caution, I'm not going to use the word abundance of caution. I'm getting tired of that, but to be cautious, you know, anybody that's related to the team that gets a sniffle and uh, that you know they shut it down. And I think that's I think that's the deal the National Hockey League have, especially here in Canada, that you strictly follow the protocol, or we're not going to permit you to play. So you shut a game here and there now just to be safe. Um, you can't let it run rampant or they're going to shut the whole thing down. So they got to be really careful. Yeah. And, and you know, what I still don't understand is uh, what they're going to do if all of a sudden, you know, you get more of these and it could happen. And all of a sudden you may, you don't, you have more games canceled than you can make up. And we're still not at that point, thankfully, but I've heard things like, well, we'll just eliminate certain games or we'll, you know, we'll decide playoffs based on win percentage or whatever else. But, you know, what's really interesting about this is if these games, if some of these games can't happen because things have tightened up so much in the Northern division, the Canadian division, and because certain teams are red hot right now, you know, there can be huge advantages to having certain games canceled. If you catch the right team at the wrong time or the wrong team at the right time, you could somehow end up getting into the playoffs if you have three games against the proper team canceled, 
right? If, if you don't play yeah. those games and those are games that you probably would have lost, your win percentage suddenly you could find yourself in the playoffs because of cancellations in a tight division like the North is right now. I'm pretty sure that the National Hockey League have a plan that if there are games that are missing, it, it may be the relevance of them may be a factor in it. They may plan on reverting. They must have a plan B. I'd be almost positive they're not waiting for us to come up with it for them. So they've they've at least given it some thought. Absolutely. And and I also think that that may be why that if you look at the schedule, the Leafs played Saturday, Friday, Saturday, and I don't know when they play again, but they're off for two or three days. So we're off for two or three days last week. <clears throat> and if you check the schedule, most teams are given those breaks. They play a flurry and then they're off for a bit. And that may well be designed for cases like this. So they have room later in the schedule to fill them in. But I apologize for not having the rest of the schedule committed to memory. But yeah. I'm sure that might be part of the plan. Oh, I look, I, I'm sure. I'm sure they've got lots of different things. It's just, it was an interesting one to me. I look, again, unless you have a giant breakout now where you are losing tons of games, what we're talking about will be not a problem because they can there's always a way they can get a game or two back in here i mean that's not going to be an issue it's the it's the issue of this is the first game that's been canceled in the north division now it's been safe up until now it's been clean and so it's if we're suddenly getting some here with a variant or something else and you suddenly start losing a bunch of games how does that happen and considering again how tight everything is boy this could become very interesting about which games you don't have to play and which game, especially let's say you've, let's say there's a team by the end of this thing that have had to sit for a while and they've missed five games and the league can only get three of them in. Well, which games do they get in? Do you only play, do you skip the ones with the teams that are absolutely like Ottawa that are out of the playoffs altogether and say you only are going to play the ones against playoff contending teams? Or is it the first three? Or, you know, this becomes a really interesting situation for the schedule maker in the NHL if something like this were to happen. And this is the first hint that it could. And let's just hope it doesn't, well, but it's the first hint that it could. Well, and your point, as always, is very good. Because if you look at Ottawa and say, well, let's skip the Ottawa game because Ottawa is out of the playoffs. And the team playing them is going, wait a minute, the team we're chasing them has played Ottawa two more times and won both yep. of them. Let's yep. assume Ottawa is the doormat, right? Which they're not, but let's, I mean, somebody's got to be last. So let's say Ottawa is last. They're going, well, Winnipeg got to play them two more times than I did. That will mean they get home ice advantage in the playoffs. I assured, assuredly, they won't let games not played affect who makes the playoffs. I mean, that would be that would be hard to swallow. But they don't have the luxury like the Allen Cup Hockey League. If uh, Dundas, Brantford, and Hamilton were jockeying for a position, we could easily extend our season for a week to put the play, uh, makeup games in. NBC and Sportsnet are dictating when the finals will be, those time slots are already earmarked. The NHL, I'm sure, can't go to them and say, you know what, we're just going to stretch this out another three weeks, and NBC's going, no, you're not. We're putting mod on. Like, we've got programming <laughs> in place. But you think you think NBC's going with mod as their fallback on the NHL? <laughs> well, the ratings might be better. Well, it could be. Um, just before we go to the break here, uh, speaking of the NHL, <laughs> This one, I, I saw this written somewhere and I had to look it up because I couldn't really believe it, but it is in fact true. 
Connor McDavid has 60 points now. He's leading the NHL. He's got 60 points. He's 10 points ahead of Leon Dreisaitl, his teammate, who has 50. But the entire Buffalo Sabres squad has scored 61 goals. So Connor McDavid has been involved in one fewer goal than the entire Buffalo Sabres team, which is, which I, is really I have to unique s- because he doesn't play in Buffalo. Well, that's true. That's true. But it just is I a your point. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, it it really. Uh, th- I know that there have been years when teams have really mailed it in. I can't remember a year when a team apparently looked like they were starting to mail it in as early as Buffalo has. I mean, even Detroit last year were awful, but when we saw them, they at least looked like they were trying. They were just awful. Buffalo looks like they could not give a crap. Well, first of all, where did Ralph Krieger come from? Um, and I know people at home. Tom Sherrill knows him from Dundas. Tom, he's played for me in Brantford and Dundas. But I um, said he was a good guy. But there's lots of good guys that have never coached in National Hockey League. And, and I quite frankly think this is not good for the GM in Buffalo. That they, the, guys, like, the guys that should be performing better looked at this and went, are you kidding me? Like, we're not doing this. And they mailed it in. And I think if you drop, and I don't know, if you drop a Daryl Sutter in, and there's been, unfortunately for Jeff Ward, a tremendous uptake in their performance. If you drop a veteran guy into Buffalo, I think that somebody's going to command respect and say, boys, boys, we're all pros here. Let's look. You know what I mean? Like They can instill that confidence. I think you'll see Buffalo is not as bad as their record. And you're right. It looks like they've mailed it in. And that says two things. Connor McDavid is either that good or the Buffalo Sabres are that bad. And both those statements might be right. Yeah, and you know, the worst part for Buffalo, and, and I mean, I'm not wanting to pick on the Sabres, it's just that I, the point was just the, the amount of, of not giving a crapness that it seems to look like. No. The thing about Buffalo that's so tough is normally – even uh, the NHL doesn't allow you to finish last and automatically get the first overall pick. They have a draft lottery, but let's say Buffalo this year does because they're, you know, it's time for them to get the first overall pick. This is the year the OHL hasn't played a game. A lot of the other leagues, we haven't seen a whole lot. You, you don't even, there's no Connor McDavid or even, you know, Austin Matthews or anyone else out there. You don't even, and you don't even know. Like it's so hard to know who is the best player right now because some of the leagues aren't even playing. This is probably the worst year ever to be the worst team and to finish last and get that first overall pick. And yet, you know, in typical Buffalo Sabres fashion, because they do seem to be the team that just can't shoot straight, this will be the year probably they win it, and then they go, "Well, who do we take?" And then they'll take the guy that won't end up being the best player because that would be typical. And then it'll be five, ten more years of rebuilds. Well, Pagula did a pretty good job with the Sabres or the Bills, but the Sabres not so much yet. Not yet. Not yet. Well, we got a few more years before uh, they reach leaf levels of, uh, of futility but or Chicago Cubs until they finally won. But... Uh, we're getting into a race now between the Sabres and the Leafs for longest team without a Stanley Cup championship. And so we'll, we'll see which of those breaks at first. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know uh, if at all you have spent any time watching March Madness, um, but 
do you do you like a tournament, whether it's this or anything else? Do you like a tournament that is loaded with upsets, which is what March Madness is generally known and renowned for? Do you like the tournament where it's completely unpredictable and you may not have the best teams moving on, but at that moment it's pretty exciting because the team that no one's heard of has just upset a giant? Or do you prefer a tournament where the better teams where you know the game is going to be played at a higher level down the road advance and you get to see the very best teams battle it out eventually? I like the spontaneity of uh, not knowing who's going to win. Um, I, 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 can, I can sympathize with your assessment that down the road, the, better, the games uh, with the higher caliber teams might be better. But I would argue that the lesser teams, when they're playing the games, the intensity level is probably even higher because they make the good teams, if they knock the good teams back on their heels, the intensity goes up for the whole game. And generally the underdog is going to, they know, they don't even have to be told by the coach, they have to outwork the team they're playing or they have no choice, right? Or they have no chance, rather. I mean, they're just, the choices are very few for them. You either outwork them. So I like it. And, and you know what? I, we've all seen it so many times. March Madness is, is a lot of fun for that stuff. That for And I know people that follow the NCAA basketball, March Madness, uh, like they're, it's unbelievable how closely they keep track of it and follow it and get excited about it. But two years ago, the Tampa Bay Lightning got beat out in the first round of the playoffs and didn't fire their coach. And then came back and won. Now, was that exciting? I mean, it sure gave everybody lots to talk about. Everybody's going, crap, Tampa may get beat out in the first round. And you start paying more attention. So I think it happens at all the levels. I think hockey, March Madness, hockey's a little bit more in that category than some of the other ones are. But, yeah, I think I, I the answer is yes, I enjoy it. I I think that, and it's funny because I think we, in our society, we we say, and I think we believe that we like things that are of the highest quality. We like to watch movies that are properly made and TV shows that are done well, and we like to buy things that are of the best quality. And by that description, we should want all the favorites to advance and to play on because we know they're the super teams. They've got all the top prospects and the highest ranked players and everything else. But you're right. I don't think that's the case. I think almost everybody would say I would be very happy to watch Oral Roberts beat Ohio State and say, you know, like, you know, obviously not the people who like Ohio State, but the point is you would, they would be very happy to watch these massive upsets. And I don't exactly understand why. I mean, I guess it's the whole David and Goliath thing, but sure it is. But it seems that that's the thing. That's what people are. I don't want to compare it to a, a car wreck in NASCAR, although I think there are people who watch it for that, but I th- there are things in every game, every tournament, every sport that are probably a guilty pleasure. And I don't even know if this is a guilty pleasure watching for the upsets. Well, I, you know, I agree. And I, I'm listening to what you're saying as, as I always do, of course. But when you talk about um, um, wanting to see the best and all that, and you know, a number of years ago when Reggie Jackson, Thurman Munson, Billy Martin, people hated the Yankees because they were so good. So that kind of dispels that thought process. I certainly understand where you're coming from. 
there are there are there are people that don't like the Yankees from years ago because their dad didn't, or they don't like the New England Patriots because they won so much. Yeah. So explain that one to me, right? That there are people that just they don't like teams that win too much. Well, I appreciate teams that win too much. I mean, uh, as a matter of fact, if I'm around the real McCoys when we were kind of winning every year, I really liked it a lot better <laughs> not winning every year. And there were teams and there were communities that we would go into like Whitby and like Norwood that just hated us. Not because we were bad people, just because we were successful. But when you say everybody wants to see the best play, there's a certain segment that don't, they don't want to see, you know, the dominant team win year after year after year. There are exceptions, but they get tired of it. Yeah. You know what? The funny thing about this is, and March Madness is great for, for a lot of things, but one of the things that it's really great for is that most of us could not tell you anything about 85 to 90% of the teams in the tournament. And I'm saying most, I'm talking about the people who know something about college basketball. For a lot of people, they don't know anything about 100% of the teams. They just, but there are teams that we've never even heard of before. I remember a number of years ago, now they're a number one seed right now and they're a great team, Gonzaga. But I remember 15, 20 years ago, I don't know when they first appeared, there were people who were like, Gonzaga, isn't that a cheese? And they didn't, I mean, they didn't even know they would no, it's not Gargonzola. It's, it's, but the point is there were schools that show up that we've never even heard of before. But the fact is that we don't necessarily, as you say, want Duke or Kentucky or Kansas or whomever to win all the time. And we love it when those super giant schools get knocked off by a nobody. And I, I again, I'm not entirely sure I understand it. I kind of do, but I'm not entirely sure I get it. The whole idea of rooting for the the nobody, maybe it's because we see ourselves in that and we can imagine that we were on the floor. Although, look, even the little tiny schools are better than you and I and everyone else listening. But, you know, it's just, it, there's something unique oh, about that idea of seeing the giant that s- sort of strides in fully expecting to win, get knocked down a peg. And maybe we imagine the schoolyard bully that gave us a hassle at school and we sort of personalize that and think, oh, that's nice. They get their comeuppance. I, you know, that's in every aspect of life, though. I mean, I've run lots of political campaigns and um, um, and I've told candidates and the last ones I've run recently who are um, uh, Lancaster with Lloyd Ferguson. I mean, Lloyd Ferguson, in my mind, is one of the absolute very best counselors the city of Hamilton have. But I, you know, the first year he ran when Murray was, uh, was ill. And I said, well, 25% of the people aren't going to vote for you. He said, why? And I said, because 25% of the people just photo gates the name. And because he was replacing his brother, it was still the Ferguson name. And take it back the second time he ran, I said, same deal. 25% of the people, whether it's any counselor, the world's best counselor, the world's best premier, there are people that vote against the person that's there because that's their mindset. They think they have to do that. No matter how outstanding the job, there are people that are just anti-establishment and think that a gray dog could do a better job. And that's the way it is. That's why people dislike teams that win all the time. It's, it's rampant for our society. I mean, 
talking about weird things in our society. They just got rid of the uh, Peppy, the little skunk. Well, you know, he... Um... What did he ever do? Well, that's a whole other discussion for a whole other day that we'll have to have it uh, in a much deeper situation <laughs> yeah, than right now. Uh, but yes, he is uh, apparently uh, Pepe Le Pew is uh, is no longer. So you know, we'll. Uh, but again, that'll be another discussion. Uh, let's take a break. We're going to come. Go ahead. No, you got my point though, right? No, no matter how good the basketball team is, or how good the uh, football team is, or how good the, the NHL team is, there are people that will dislike them because. There are people out there that just dislike everything. Sorry, of course, of course, and you know there there is a there is a sense that if you know the the big teams are the man, and you, if you can knock down the man, if you can beat the man, I mean it's like they're the they're the corporate teams, they're the they're the as I say the yeah. schoolyard bullies, whatever. You can personalize that onto those teams, and you know it's uh, this tournament is perfect for that. It's it's absolutely perfect for that, and this year especially, it's living up to that with upsets everywhere. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked about this before, and I'm going to bring this back up because I am just amazed at, well, let's put it this way. The Blue Jays season opens on April the 1st. We're like eight days away, nine days away, something in that ballpark. Pardon the pun. And have you, do you know anything about what's going on in spring training right now? Only what I've picked up in the paper, and that's not much because not a lot of guys down there, as you know. Yeah, it, so it no, is amazing. Not, not, not what I, I guess the question to really answer, Scott, is not what I normally would have known about. I would have normally been listening to the odd game, driving around, uh, you know, whether I'm going to see clients or whatever I'm doing, and there's none of that now. It blows me away that, that, that this is the time when the team is usually ramping up and there's all kinds of hype and discussion and optimism and debate about who should be starting here. There is, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to say you've heard nothing, but this to me seems like so bizarre that you've got a team that everyone is pointing to saying, this is a great young up and coming team. Last time we had a team that sort of fit this mold of, you know, they've, they've, they're this up and coming team of young guys that are all supposed to come together and explode at once. It was probably 84, 83, 84, when you had the, the George Bell and Lloyd Mosby and Damaso Garcia and Tony Fernandez and all those guys. And there's almost no talk about them. And I put the blame a lot of ways on this on Rogers, who got rid of the radio crew. They've not done a lot of radio stuff. Many of the games have not been on television. It's just been, to me, a massive lost opportunity. And maybe once the season starts, everybody's going to completely jump on board. But boy, it seems that before a big movie opens, you see tons of trailers and all the advertising the movie studio can possibly put in front of your eyeballs to get you hyped up. This is the opposite of that. I don't... uh... I'm sure their marketing staff's a lot bigger than the one I got at the Real McCoys and Comp Choice Realty. So they must have a better plan than I would have had. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm not even sure how the simulcast will go. And I don't even know, and you you, you might know this, is anybody else in Major League Baseball do this? No. Has anybody done that to cut cut costs? Because that can be the only reason it's to cut costs, right? It can't be to improve quality. Uh, no, like it's, that, it's like ab- the quality of the ra- if they didn't no, like it's the not for quality the radio for sure. broadcast. No, it's not. Then hire better people. They had good people. 
Costco they still do. I just, as I say, I, I just find it amazing that we are now maybe in the last week, it's going to be so ramped up that you're going to be not able to avoid Blue Jays. But I mean, here's a perfect example. Today, uh, they the Blue Jays have an injury to their closer and their closer is now going to be out for uh, a number of weeks. Kirby Yates. First of all, I would wonder how many non-diehards, how many just casual baseball fans, but who do tune in would have been able to tell you who Kirby Yates is. And secondly, I would love to know how many of them were aware today that the Jays just lost their closer for multiple weeks with an elbow injury. This once upon a time, can you imagine back? And again, I don't want to go all old school here, but once upon a time when it was Tom Hankey or, you know, go later with anybody, Dwayne Ward or anybody in more recent years, when you had uh, Osuna, when he was your closer, if all of a sudden your closer has an elbow problem and you're now the huge part of your bullpen has fallen off for a while, this is massive discussion point. And now crickets because nobody knows. It's amazing. Doesn't make any sense. Well, we'll see. How, well, it's their money, right? It is their money. Of course it is. Of course it is. But I just, I, I just don't understand it exactly. And I said this before and I'll say it again. The cost, because you say it's got to be about cost saving. The cost for a radio crew, if you have a radio guy and a play-by-play guy and an engineer because you need someone who travels around and make sure that they're actually on the air, one year of all of their salaries put together is probably no more expensive. In fact, it would definitely be no more expensive than two days of George Springer's contract. I, I thought about this weekend when, when they weren't on the radio or I couldn't find them or I wasn't in my truck. I figure half a million a year. No, I might be wrong, but they would travel with the team. So the charter isn't going to get a lot more expensive with two or three more guys on it, right? Like it half. I think the minimum salary in the major leagues is less. So it's less than one salary to do it right. So you're right, George Springer. Name who you want. But really? And, you, and I'll tell you one you other thing. we got to run. The other thing, Don, that we, and we got to run. But you're not playing at home right now. And I understand that. So you're not really advertising to get people down to the park. But to me, that's when you really need to get this out in front of everybody to keep people engaged because they can't go to the park. This is when you, you spend the money and again, not my money, I get it, but you spend the money to make sure as many people are fully engaged this in this as possible. So when you can come home, everybody is locked in and wants to be part of this. Yeah. It makes no sense. We'll see how it goes. That is Don Robertson. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining me this uh, this night. We uh, we do this with Don every single Monday from seven till eight. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. It's not even dark though. What a great day. Thank you. Perfect. You can go take down the Christmas lights now. <laughs> Thank you. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.